Released in 1980, this horror film directed by Stanley Kubrick and starring Jack Nicholson is touted by some viewers as one of the greatest horror films of all time. Over the years, many have soured on it though, from the history of awful treatment of Shelley Duvall and set, and has become notoriously known to be hated by the author Stephen King, whose book of the same name it's been adapted from. Today, on You've Never Seen It, we're kicking off October by heading to the Overlook Hotel. That's right, we're talking The Shining. Welcome to You've Never Seen It, an audio podcast where I'm on a mission to never hear those four words again. I'm your host, Allison Salamone, and joining me today is a horror stan, former Schmodown competitor Rick the Rager Raddus, and you can find him as the host of Really Scared on Watt Real Entertainment, and of course, an expert in all things The Shining. Good old Taylor Cleek is here with me today. What's up, Taylor? Hello, hello, ghouls and goblins. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I'm so excited you're here. You know, you mentioned you mentioned Really Scared, which is a, <laughs> a horror podcast I host intermittently, I would say. Um, but and, and for those who don't know the format of that show, we have guests on. They pick horror films that they're passionate about, and we just discuss them at length. I've been on record several times saying that Shining is my favorite horror movie, but we've never covered it i was always waiting for somebody to pick that movie and we never have so (laughs) this is going to be really cathartic and i've brought a lot of notes because i I had i called my own shot i had to show up (laughs) as a shining scholar so you sure did get comfortable (laughs) strap in folks this one might be a marathon (laughs) yeah this is gonna be (laughs) so fun to edit i can't wait I am notorious for being long-winded, so feel free to just cut me off anytime you want. <laughs> and You've that's The enough. Shining. Have a good one. <laughs> yeah, it might be necessary. I, I, do, I don't want to put you through the, the grief of this being your longest episode. No. Like, sure we can, no sure you, we honestly, I haven't even recorded with, with a PJ Campbell yet, but I'm assuming between this one and that one, I'll have like, mm-hmm. what? <laughs> what? There are some episodes where I'm like, I may not sound like it, but like I'm straining for our conversation and I'm trying to like get there because I'm sitting at like, oh, it's been at least 35 to 40 minutes. And I look at the little timer and it's like 15 and I'm like, fuck, (laughs) like how can I make this work? How can I make this movie sound even more interesting? Let's figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Believe me, I came with plenty to say. And if if it's a contest now, we can't let PJ win. I'm going to be the last (laughs) And I lose in the end either way. It's fine. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, well, no matter happens, you lose. Kind of how just how life is sometimes, you know? Yeah. Sometimes you're the windshield. Sometimes you're the bug. Either way, I don't want to be either of them. So, <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming and hanging out with me. Um, before we even get into it, so we're talking about The Shining today, but before we even kind of get into it, let's get a little info from you and like your history with where you are with, you know, how you feel about movies and the type of watch you are, your favorite genres, and really, and mm-hmm. then, you know, we'll close out this whole intro part with why The Shining? Why did we have to talk about this film? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm definitely 
if I, if I was going to pick a kind of movie I like or a genre that I feel most comfortable in, I'm definitely the horror guy. You know, it's October right now, scary season. This is when I thrive. This is when the entire world is on the same page as me for you know, 31 days and it feels so nice. <laughs> I love horror movies. Been that way pretty much since I was a kid. Um, it, was, it was sort of a traumatic entrance into the genre like most people experience. <laughs> Staying up too late, seeing movies you shouldn't have, Nightmare on Elm Street, Candyman, those were big ones for me. Critters, I remember being scared by Critters as a child. And then it's like this weird, when, once you've done it though, once you've kind of peered over into the void a little bit, you keep going like, even though even though you felt terrible doing it, you're like, I kind of want to, I kind of want to take another look. And it just became that, that continuous trip back to the well to see how much further we could go, how much scarier it could get. And, you know, what kind of experience could I could I have with these movies? And so it's like that dragon I've been chasing my entire life. And The Shining, I would say, I'm very bad at quantifying favorite movies, best movies, stuff like that. I really struggle with that. I watch a lot of movies and my, my, it can, my answer can change with the season. But if I had to put, you know, a bullet on it, I would say The Shining is my favorite scary movie. And I, I, I think what the, the best part of it is, is I revisit this every year, usually every October, and I'm still always shaken by it. I'm still mm -hmm. always on that ride again for the first time. And it is very difficult to watch, especially a scary movie, and feel like you're right back where you were when you came across it for the very first time, even though you know it's going to happen, you know what the ending is, but it doesn't matter because... There's always something there that you engage with and that chills your your spine and makes your blood run cold. And that is the shining for me every year. I, I always come back to it and go, wow, this still works every single year. There is something just so inherently creepy and disturbing and exciting yeah. about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And that is why. That is what I picked here because, of course, I knew you were not a horror person. <laughs> I am not a horror person. And it's so funny you say that because, like, I've gotten better. I want to say I really think, honestly, really within the past year and a half, I've gotten a lot better. And I think, and of course, a lot of it is due to my husband is a huge horror fan. Like, loves yeah. horror. We went to go see. <laughs> I remember I texted your lovely partner, Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. um, about Barbarian before going to see it. And she called me. She's mm -hmm. like, you're going to die because I died. And then I'm like, <laughs> cool, good to know. And then went to go see it. And I watched it with my hands over my eyes like this, like peeking yeah. out when I could, like leading in and hiding into Frank. And at one point, Frank just leaned over and he goes, just know that something's going to happen and you'll be fine. And I looked up at him, I go, that's why I'm about to throw up right now because I know something's <laughs> going to happen. It's not fine. Yeah. Like none yeah. of this is fine <laughs> to me. Um, you know, we talk about being traumatized. The first horror movie I remember seeing and being traumatized by, and I think it's why I feel this way to this day is honestly Ernest Scared Stupid when I was five years old. <laughs> wow. <my> dad wow. <laughs> I could never have guessed that that's what you were going to say. <laughs> Good pick, though. My dad, I've not seen it since. My yeah. dad took us, I was five, took us, both of my older siblings, and our neighbor, David Christie, maybe he's listening to this, I don't know, I wonder how he's doing nowadays, but took all four of us <laughs> to go see Ernest Scared Stupid. 
And David Christie and I sobbed the entire time. We were so scared. And I don't remember anything about that movie. I honest to God do not remember. I think I blanked it out because like how you can do whatever you can do psychologically to like forget memories. All I remember is being terrified and pissed leaving that theater. It's weird how you perceive things as a child, you know, stuff, stuff just truly like you have no sense of what can be real and what can't be real. Mm -hmm. And like, tone and intention of the movie you know like i i would imagine nobody was making earnest scared stupid with the genuine intention of like we're gonna freak people out we're gonna really shock them we're gonna shock them dead but as a child you just interpret it differently and 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 i know what that feeling is and that's a that's a much more i was surprised that was what you said (laughs) but that is a i would say a much healthier movie to have watched as a child than what I said, you know, Candyman right. or Goosebumps. <laughs> Goosebumps was a big one for me as a kid like that, you know, and that's that age appropriate. But I can remember just being, I don't know why I would be cement stuck to the couch under the blanket, unable to move. And, but I would willingly sign up for that every single week. You know, we'd go to the library and rent Goosebumps VHS tapes and I couldn't help myself, even though I would have terrible nightmares. Why would yeah. I do that to myself? Oh, I, used to watch I, I loved Goosebumps. And then, I remember there was one episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark that gave Ooh, yeah. I used to be able to watch that and but there was one that gave me nightmares and it was the one where the teacher had like a sorcerer staff and was like hit I don't know and like there was something about the pool, but whatever was going on in that one, that's the one that got me. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's so weird I remember these little things. So getting back into that, so horror movies not my thing started watching obviously talk about them all the time started watching carpenter with right. with my husband and he introduced me to we finally sat down and watched the thing and that's where i got the appreciation for more practical effects and now i can watch stuff like that or i've been able to do i've been able to like really do like the slashers like the halloweens mm-hmm. um i could probably do the jason stuff i just haven't yet um but like yeah like that kind of stuff i've gotten really good at but like this side of horror like the shining side with like the psychological horror no thank you like i refuse to watch hereditary that will never be on the show (laughs) i refuse to watch anything in the conjuring franchise i like uh, insidious none of it like shit that like could actually like i've seen the exorcist scares the fuck out of you because i was raised catholic like talked about that before like those like but movies like that probably i have zero intention will never watch and i am perfectly okay with my life being that way so you're saying if i picked out any of those movies you would have said no well you to be fair you almost said no to this i I literally i literally asked people like i asked my own members of my family who i also know have seen this movie and they know how i am with with horror movies what they like how i was like on a scale of one to i'm gonna die and shit my pants where does the (laughs) shining land and like yeah. horror, knowing me, and like everyone said, I'd be fine, and I was fine watching it. It was still scary. Yep. We're um, still here, but like the shit I've heard about Hereditary, I'm good. The shit I've heard about, like it follows, and the whole. Co- I slept with the light on after I saw The Ring in high school. Like this is where this is. The this, Ring's pretty scary. You, exactly. It's so, like you can understand my level of like what I've experienced and like where yeah. I where I kind of go with it. <laughs> It's funny that you mentioned Hereditary. Um, I was actually, you mentioned Jessica, and I was talking to her earlier how 
I feel like horror movies like these, you know, when the, when The Shining came out initially in 1980, it was not well received, right? Um, by by critics, it's one of those where like over the, over the years, the perception of it has changed completely. But it was not very well received critically, and a lot of the common critiques were, oh, it's too slow, it's so plodding, it's monotonous, and a lot of people said it's just not very scary, mm -hmm. or, or not scary, or we what is it even about? What was that movie even about? And I feel like mo movies like this that I would call more atmospheric horror. Mm -hmm. They're not really based on, uh, even though I, you know, I would classify this as a ghost story um, in some senses. It's not what's around the corner. It's going to jump out and get you. It's not, that's not the kind of movie this is. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of movies will always have an audience and will always be relevant and popular. And I'm not criticizing them because I love those kinds of movies too. But I feel like the more atmospheric, and, um, and and deliberate horror films are becoming more in vogue again now. And something like a Hereditary or a Midsommar, like Ari Aster, somebody who I think it really makes that kind of movie. Or, um, or Robert Eggers, you know, The mm -hmm. Witch, The Lighthouse. I feel like those are kind of there in the same wheelhouse as a as a Kubrick or a Yorgos Lanthimos. I feel like I feel like this style is becoming a lot more popularized now not maybe still with like what you would call a mainstream horror audience. Although maybe it is, maybe the mainstream is changing. But when I watch this, it makes me feel a way that maybe those, I, I, I don't mean to be, I, I don't, I don't mean to disparage them, but I would say a simpler, maybe more straightforward movies don't make me feel on a repeat mm -hmm. watch. You know, I go back and watch the classic slashers and I love them. They're great. They're classics, but they're just fun. They're dumb fun. Right. You know, I, I love I love Halloween I love the Halloween series, but it's it's simple, it's straightforward, and that's part of the charm to it. Whereas this is like, to me, every time I watch and I'm digesting this movie, I'm thinking really intently about the details of it, and I think it's just one of the most fascinating horror films to ever be made. And 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 it's it's no surprise or coincidence that the critical uh, perception of it has changed over the decades. Um, but I, every time I see it. I'm just, I, I'm there. I'm in that hotel yeah. and I can't get out. And I, and I'm, I was actually quite relieved when you told me you found it scary because some people don't like that kind of movie. They mm -hmm. don't like, you know, the more patient atmospheric horror films. And I, and I get that too. I get that side of it. So I wondered if you would maybe think it was too slow or too boring and not scary. Slow a little bit. I mean, it is almost three hours. It's like two it, hours yeah. and 41 minutes. So it's definitely slow. I don't disagree with that. Right. But, it, but I think the idea of your, the whole, it's all, it's, I think it falls under the same kind of thing as like an alien, right? The idea that you're stuck in one place and you can't go anywhere and the shit's just closing in on you. I think mm -hmm. that plays into, to me, that's that claustrophobia of being stuck in one place and not being able to get out or do something or go get help. To me, that that's terrifying. I would hate, like, I mean, I just went through a hurricane, like, and we were stuck, yeah. like, trying to figure shit out, right? That's, that is probably one of the scariest situations to ever be in that for me personally. So the idea that we're stuck at this hotel because it's winter and there's no way in or out except for like one machinery that he went and he pulled shit out of like that it like that right there already sets me up with like anxiety of like oh no right mm -hmm. like what am i going to do and then you add on the extra like the ghost story aspects of it and everything that goes into it 
so it really did play on my anxieties because that is some a, a fear that I have of just being stuck. Yeah. And in this movie too, I would say what, what helps it hold up is it's so based in humanity. You know, mm -hmm. it is, it is a, like I said, in aspects of ghost story, but Kubrick had also gone on record stating he didn't want to tell a ghost story. And, and that's one of the big differences between this and the novel, which I'm sure we'll reference throughout and King's relationship with the movie and, mm -hmm. and uh, the history there. But um, you know what, what, attracted Kubrick to that this novel initially and adapting this story wasn't a haunted hotel. It wasn't spooky ghosts. It was the dynamic of what, what happens to a man who's innately bad. And what right. if we could, what if we could get close to that evil and see it up close and, and, and see what it looks like when it tries to pretend to be something else, which is also one of the big um, differences between this and what Stephen King had originally written but jack torrance you know i think when you see when the movie starts off and you know first of all this shit just starts doesn't it you hit right. play and there's there's no fanfare there's no like hey you're it's about to watch car. this movie yeah, it's just it that's the other thing that's very unsettling with this movie is the sound and mm, yeah the score like i hate the, those high pitch high frequency things that tend to happen that I feel like Hubert just does that is just like that ear piercing noise and like the score really, really unsettling in this. Yeah. The, the sound design and the, the composition can't, it can't be overstated how great they are. I mean, they're a huge part. And when, when you do see that I've, I've still never seen this in a theater, that's definitely something I want to cross off a bucket list, but I did get to go see it. Um, I think maybe almost two years ago in a drive-in that's, and I went with, with Jess and that was the first time she saw it. And oh, it wasn't it in 1996 and a giant tornado came and blew the screen <laughs> off and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but we did see it in a drive-in and it was so, you know, it was so loud and foreboding and oppressive because the, you know, we were in our, in our car and we had the sound cranked up and, the, the sound that that's what unnerved her the most was the sound. Yeah. And when I mean, you can really hear it, there's so many layers to it. And it's interesting too, because um, so little of the score is, is original compositions. Um, it, a lot of it is, you know, when you, when you make a, when, when it's time for a movie to um, be scored, you know, when it goes off to the composer, a lot of times it'll already be cut together. You have like a, a loose cut, with what they call a temp track, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's music that's placed here. Maybe it gives the right tempo or the right mood. And it's, it's you know, sort of an indicator to the composer. This is what we're trying to achieve to give them kind of a place to begin. And Kubrick had done that for the movie. And then they brought it off to the composer, Wendy Carlos. And she, she scored the entire film. But there's only two compositions she made that are actually still in the movie because Kubrick then decided, actually, I like all that stuff I found so much. I'm just going to keep it in the movie. And so... And, and it was really, uh, you could imagine, very upsetting to Wendy Carlos. What an asshole. Like, the more we yeah. talk about this and the more research I do on this, I just, it makes me not like Kubrick as a person. Oh, he's a he's a mad scientist. And, <laughs> and mad scientists, like, aren't known for, you know, taking the most ethical, uh, moral high ground way mm -hmm. to get the results. It's by any means necessary. And he, you know, I... I I couldn't disparage anybody for having a complicated opinion of Stanley Kubrick. I mean, I, but I, but I, and I tru, do truly think he is 
a genius, which is not the kind of thing I would use loosely. And I don't just mean that in the fact that he was such a good filmmaker. It was like, I think, I think he was categorically a genius who decided to make movies. And so to see the kind of movies his brain produced and what he found interesting, I think is, is really a, there's not many, there's not many other directors I can think of that I would put where it's almost like, it's almost like you're watching a robot, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like it's like a, it's like a robot is, is processing humanity and, and making this thesis on it. Like that's how yeah. I, that's how hard it is for me to, you know, relate to what Kubrick's interested in sometimes. And that's why I know a lot of his movies aren't for everybody. And I get that. Right. Even, well, it's very, even though, he's very divisive director. He's very much one of those I've learned where I've not met anyone that is just like, yeah, Kubrick's okay. Like either people yeah. either love him and love everything he does and owns everything and like are, or have like specific things that they're just like, this is the greatest thing of all time. Or there's people that are on the other side and they're like, I don't really like him. I don't, yeah. I, I haven't found something I liked by him. I don't think he's that great. Um, I think like the common one that I come across is a lot of people say like full metal jacket is a great 40, like first half of a movie. And then mm -hmm. they leave, <laughs> you know, basic training and then it becomes something completely different. And it's, eh, yeah. you know, like for the longest time, I never actually watched past that part and gone mm -hmm. into so much into the second part. And then I finally did, but he's a very, just kind of like how this film is very divisive. I feel like people either love the shining or you just don't care for it and couldn't, yeah. could never watch it again. And a lot of that is, I think also stems from his treatment of people on set and when it comes to making this movie is a big one yeah. that I think has rubbed people the wrong. I think like Frank was telling me that when this movie came out, it actually won two Razzies for yeah. uh director and then for lead actress with Shelley Duvall. And then mm -hmm. many, many years later, the Razzie organization took it back because they realized how horribly she was treated on set by him. Yeah. Which is a, which is, I guess a nice sentiment on their part, but if I were them, it would make me like pause and, and go, maybe why are we doing this ever with anybody at all? True. Like, do we, do we ever know the full circumstances? Like True. not everybody is going to be Halle Berry and show up to accept the award and take it in stride. Like, right. I, 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 I feel like the, the Razzies is kind of a tired institution, but, sure. but yes, you're correct. They, they rescinded the nomination for worst actress because they felt it was too cruel to, to put that upon her. Yeah. I think, and it, it has to come up if you're going to have a genuine conversation about this movie. You have to talk about Shelley Duvall. You know, it, that's her treatment on set. It's it's definitely it's the elephant in the room. I right. think it, you're, and I don't think you're doing I think you're doing the movie a disservice to not talk about it. So, um, yeah, famously, for those who don't know, Kubrick was said to have been um, almost irrationally cruel to Kubrick on the Arctic Duvall on the set of this film um, in a way that he had singled her out specifically it wasn't just oh he was a, you know he was a maniac towards everybody it was mm -hmm. specifically he singled her out and, and with you know now he made everybody do hundreds of takes he was one of these guys right um i i don't know if it's still true but the scene where where danny and dick holleran are, are really having that conversation about the shine in the kitchen for the first time at least at one point had the world record for the most takes of any film scene with dialogue. I think yeah. they shot it 148 times and you go, wow, I wonder why Danny Lloyd stopped acting after right. this movie, I, <laughs> you know? 
how do you not? I mean, that kid had to be so traumatized just seeing everything yeah. he probably saw on set. Because you got to think about it too. 1980 or when this movie was being filmed was probably like 79, 78. The yeah. whatever regulations that we have now, they weren't having like counselors on set and like no. coordinators no. for different, you know, like like you would nowadays. So this kid would have to go on there act like he had a demon inside of him and then go home and go to bed. Like well, it is, well, it is interesting. It is actually very interesting. And, and I, not, and I, this isn't excusing Kubrick, but apparently in contrast to how he treated Shelley Duvall, it said he was actually pretty protective over Danny Lloyd to the point where, um, the kid didn't even know they were shooting a horror movie the entire time of production. They were very, he was very selective about what they would tell Danny, you know, and what selections of the script he would receive. And like when he would get, be directed mm -hmm. on set. So, you know, there's there's not a it's there's not a complete uncaringness about Kubrick. Right. I, you know, like I don't think he was a sociopath necessarily. And it, and it is very interesting to see um see interviews or hear him speak because you know, you you get a you get a certain mind's eye image of him when you read about how they made this film and then when you when you hear him or see him, he just kind of comes across as a guy. Like yeah. you know, he he's not he's not Dr. Frankenstein or anything, but um and he would drive everybody nuts with the uh, the incessant take after take after take. That's how he shot all his movies. Um, but he drove Nicholson crazy. He drove Scatman Crothers crazy. But with with Duvall, um, when you take into consideration what this script is asking from her, which is to be in near hysterics all day long, you know, mm -hmm. sunrise to sundown. I, again, I, I don't I might not have the number exactly right, but the big famous scene where Jack is walking her up the stairs and she has the bat and she's just sobbing and pleading. They shot that in the, upwards of 120 times. And you just, I, I was, I, I did a lot of research into what her takeaway is of this movie after the fact. And it's, yeah. it is in interesting that I, I, you know, I could have missed it, but I couldn't find anything where she was actually critical herself about it. Um, I, I watched a old documentary that Kubrick's daughter shot behind the scenes of, of this film and she interviews Shelley Duvall. Now granted, you, you know, you take a couple things into consideration. Kubrick's a very well-established, influential, powerful director at this point in his career. Shelley Duvall, you know, I, I would say, a, you know, a famous actress by this point, I think Popeye comes out like the next year and that's kind mm -hmm. of like there's that. And then there's this, and she still has a career after that. But, you know, with our understanding of how, uh, you know, power structures work in these, in this industry, especially in the 1980s. And, you know, she, she's an actress and he's a director. Maybe there's a, there's a, there's an intimidation factor there where you don't want to criticize him or, or give bad press for the movie before it comes out, you know, like that, right. that's just maybe not how it worked. But even, even now there was this Hollywood reporter article that came out, I think maybe two years ago, maybe a year ago where, cause she's, cause she's kind of, I don't want to say falling off the grid, but you know, she's yeah. not in the industry anymore. Right. You know, she, it's a very private life. And you know, there was this terrible, like exploitative Dr. Phil interview with her years ago. And, and you, you get the sense that, you know, she's, she's, she's dealt with and dealing with a lot mentally. You yes. know, it's, it's unfortunate, especially paired with the knowledge of how this film went, but they interviewed her a year or two ago. And, and even now her consensus seems to be that it was really difficult and she was put through a lot, but at the end of the day, it's what got the product that they delivered. And it, she's always, as far as I have been able to find, always stuck to the 
the answer that it was worth it in the end. Mm -hmm. And so does that still make it right? I don't necessarily think so. And, you know, I, Shelly Duvall doesn't need me to hold grudges on her behalf, but I think we can all still look back and see how she was. I mean, her hair was falling out. She would grow physically ill. I I was reading such a sad excerpt of, of, you know, a quote from her where she was saying, you know, I used to walk around set listening to sad music, or I would think of, I think of sad things that happened in my life. And that's how I would get in the right headspace to cry. And then eventually I would wake up and just knowing what I was going to have to do that day, that's all it would take. I would just start to cry and I would just be crying all day and screaming all day. And I mean, you, you can't, I can't imagine, you yeah. know, no, I, can't I, imagine. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I think, but it, like you said, I, I, it's, it's how, from what she comes across or how she puts it out there, like it got, and Kubrick has long been gone at this point. If she wanted to come out and yeah. like trash him, she could now, if she's going to, you you never know, right? But at the end of the day, you know, uh, directors are insane in most cases. Like, what Kubrick was doing on actual film is what people like David Fincher are known to do now because of digital, yeah, right? Exactly. Like, I talked about it in my episode with Lon on Zodiac. That was, like, one of the first movies to be done only on digital, and it was driving... Robert Downey Jr. and Jake Gyllenhaal all freaking insane because yeah. of the amount of takes that David Fincher would do. So it's not an uncommon thing to happen, but mm-hmm. it's just kind of one of those things where at the same time too, is it almost is like, it's Kubrick really doing it because that's that the one that he chose is really that much different from the 146 other ones <laughs> that came from it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, is that 148th take really the one that was meant to be what it wanted to be? Or is he just doing it because he could? Right. I mean, that's, that goes back to my point earlier where it's like, he's got this weird analytical mind that I it's, you know, again, it's like, plugging into the matrix. It's like, I don't, I can't imagine seeing the world through the lens that that guy sees it, that he could watch Scatman Crothers sitting in his bed, wide eyes, wide open towards the ceiling. And he would say, you know what, let's shoot it another 110 times because I just don't think we have it yet. Right. You know, and that, which was another one. I think, you know, he drove Scatman Crothers a little nuts and I, the take they use of that, you know, when he's sort of uh, psychically aligned with Danny and like getting that distress signal and and his, and, and his, by the way, he was having the best damn vacation of his life. He's just sitting in this little, this little bedroom with a bunch yeah. of pictures of frame framed pictures of naked, naked women, women having, just boobies hanging over, have, over his having head. the time of his life. And then they push in and his eyes are bloodshot and, and he's crying. And it, from my understanding, again, that wasn't just a performance on that man's part. It was like, he was exhausted and his, he, his eyes were so irritated at this point. Cause yeah. they just keep shooting him silently staring at the ceiling um, but, but to, to, to fall specifically again, you know, um, I, I don't, I don't think you can excuse how combative he was towards her. And, and I, and I understand it, you know, what he was doing, I suppose he was trying to put her in the, in the, you know, anxiety ridden headspace of a, of a battered wife. You yeah. know, and he said, we're going to actually put you there to the point where you are paranoid and you, you are af- afraid of having a, this dialogue and, I, you know, I, I would say if there was an agreement beforehand between the two, if Kubrick said, Hey, I want to, I have this 
experimental idea and I want to try to put you to this place and this is what it's going to take. And do you consent to that? Right. And she said, sure, golly, let's do it. <laughs> That's my Shelly Duvall impression. And, and they did it. That would be one thing. But, right. you know, I, I guess maybe to Kubrick, that wouldn't have been that probably would have been authentic. Right. Like result. it wouldn't have been yeah. it. Wouldn't, it's like the whole thing with um in the original Friday the 13th when they had Jason burst through the glass and grab i think it's Corey feldman that's standing there like or whoever it was i was standing there when he burst through the, like the cabin or whatever they didn't tell him that that was going to happen they just oh, grabbed him yeah. and yank him out so like the look of terror on his face is pure right. terror of someone busting in behind me yeah <laughs> and snatching yeah. me up like you know things were done a lot differently and it's one of the you hate making the excuse but at the same time it's just like that's what it was right yeah. and while we've come a little bit further we haven't come that far because we still have directors treating people like shit on set absolutely no i think if if you try to do this exact same thing like today you probably wouldn't get away with it but if you tried to do this exact same thing 10 years ago mm -hmm. maybe less i don't know you know the the, the way the, the industry is changing and the way that the culture looks at things like this is a little different now and, you know, I mean, obviously there was also no internet then right. and these things were not so easily publicized and, you know, unless it was in a magazine or, you know, again, a documentary you could watch or, right. or, um, or people would be lining up. I mean, you hear reports all the time of like how horrible David O. Russell is on set yeah. to yeah. how he horribly he was to Jennifer Lawrence on literally every movie he's done with her and making Amy Adams cry on the set of American hustlers. I think it was, or American, whatever that one was with yeah. to the point where like Christian Bale stepped in and was like, bro, you need to sit the fuck down. Like you need to chill right. out. But yet he's, he has his whole movie coming out, right? Yeah. Like people are still lining up to work with these directors, even though they're, they're so well known for their onset abuse, yeah. which is, is it blows my mind. But also it's like, I mean, what, am, what are we going to like, if people are going to work with them and that's what they're going to tolerate, then that's on them at, at right. a certain point too. You know, it kind of, it kind of yeah. feels like, but it's definitely not a practice. That's not, it's been done. And it's clearly something that's for whatever reason is going to continue until people really start kind of not wanting to work with these people. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. No, that's a great example of Russell. Yeah. It's, I, and that's, and that's somebody who I have, you know, I, I have no interest in his work yeah. because of, you know, and there's some things about him beyond just his work on set, which right. I don't need to detail here, but um, no, that's a great example that I think the tolerance for that kind of stuff just is not where it was perhaps in 19. 80 and yeah and, and but but i i you know i i don't excuse it and i if she's found peace with it that's terrific i hope she has and, and but just because she has doesn't mean others have to as well so for sure. I, you know if, if that was a hang up for somebody to enjoy this you know i i would certainly get that um but i think so much of the success of this film and it working is also in thanks to Shelley Duvall. Right. Um, unfortunately, some, you know, someone at the expense of Shelley Duvall, but also very much to her credit as well, because um, I, basically I, we can kind of get, I, I suppose, maybe into the Stephen King of it as well. But um, she was, she was Kubrick's first pick. Uh, I think basically everybody in the film was Kubrick's first pick. You know, yeah. he, he got who he got, who he wanted. He knew what the story was going to be and what the characters, how they needed to play on screen. And she was his first pick. And she, 
uh, differs a lot from Wendy in the novel, who who King wrote as more of a headstrong, um, you know, uh, defiant, you know, independent. Everything that Wendy is not in this movie. Yeah. She's very um, submissive, and she's you know making excuses for for her abusive husband, and is very meek and and afraid. And you know she's 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 like a, a little mouse. <laughs> you know she yeah. disappears in the corner of the of the room or in the corner of the frame, and then so so King didn't want Shelley Duvall. I, I forget. I forget who he had recommended. I think maybe Jessica Lang or maybe Nicholson had recommended her. But Nicholson was also the big thing that drove King nuts. Really? Um, so let's let's kind of get into that part of it. Because that's the other thing is Stephen King is very notorious for hating this film. Hates and it. And hating. Now, even before getting into that, have you read The Shining before see, with along with having seen it now at this point? So, I have it. Okay. I've only yeah, I've only read it once, and it was a couple of years ago. And I today I sat down and just kind of went over some of the, the the notes on the book too to make sure some details of it were still fresh. But I, I did read the book after having seen the movie, mm-hmm. and it does differ in a lot of ways, not just in story, but also in characterization, and also what I would say is the intention or meaning of the story. And I, I spent a lot of time really you know, in prep for this, I spent a lot of time reading about why Stephen King despises this movie so deeply. And I came to build a lot of empathy for why he feels the way that he did. You know, it wasn't always something I totally got because I love this movie. Right. 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 And I was like, I was like, this is, this is, I mean, I would offhand, I also would probably say, you know, the, probably the greatest Stephen King adaptation, not the most accurate, but perhaps the most iconic and, 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 you know, King's really back in style again. Adapting his work is yeah as huge as huge as it's ever been, if not bigger, the biggest it's ever been. But I would say this is still maybe the most iconic adaptation of Stephen King's work in my book. Yeah, but so a a great place to start with why Stephen King doesn't like this movie is its treatment of Jack, um, and and it's the casting of Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance because when King writes this book. The Shining was his third novel, mm-hmm. and and so he's still he's he is a sensation by this point. You know that's right. they mark they market this movie from the master of horror Stephen King. You know so it's a, he's a whole thing already. But it was his third novel, and this movie was adapted from it real quick. I think the book came out seventy seven. This mm-hmm. comes out nineteen eighty. It's yeah. a real quick turnaround. That's a real quick adaptation. Yeah. for sure. Yeah, and 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 even now King writes stuff, and you know before it hits the shelf, it's still somebody's got the rights to it, but right. it still, it takes, that's a pretty quick turnaround, especially for 1980. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's a deeply, deeply personal book for King. He, he thought of it while staying at the Stanley hotel in Colorado. Um, you know, he and his, he and his wife at the time were staying there and they were like one of very few guests and it's a massive hotel and he would spend time walking through the halls at night. And he, he would just describe how, as soon as he, as soon as he was there, he just immediately knew what the entire story was. And Jack Torrance on the page is very much an analog for Stephen King himself. He's a writer struggling with writer's block, who is dealing with substance abuse and alcohol alcoholism. He's an addict. Stephen King was very much an addict, especially then. Um, in fact, I would say it probably wasn't even at its worst yet, but he mm-hmm. was struggling with alcoholism and he was struggling with being a father as well. He, 
Um, I don't, I don't know that he ever said he was necessarily there's confirmed that he was necessarily ever abusive towards his children, but he would find himself harboring a lot of guilt over some of the dark thoughts that would come to him when maybe, you know, he is trying to write and his, you know, his kids need something they're you know they're there and he, he just needs them to not be there and have, he would think about how right. easy it would be to just turn around and raise your hand towards them right he would, he would he was so disturbed to know that that was in him even if he never acted on it how easy it could be to go there and so that's what jack is on the page jack is a a, a good guy who did bad things and is trying to reconcile reconcile them and become better Mm-hmm. Whereas in the movie, in my opinion, this is why he didn't like Jack Nicholson as, as, as Jack is in the movie. He's not a good guy. He's, he's not a good guy who did a bad thing. He's a bad guy pretending that he's something better. And from the second you see Nicholson, that's why he didn't like the cast. He's like, everybody will know immediately. This guy's going to go nuts. Right. Everybody could tell from the first scene, this guy's going to be a killer by the end of it. And he didn't like that because that's not, the character he wrote it was a slow and sad decline into madness you know being overcome by these supernatural forces until that's all that's left of you mm-hmm. whereas this guy is like he's he's so tightly wound as, as soon as you see nicholson in that car with with wendy and danny and then he's asking him about the donner party and yeah yeah that's right they ate each other it's mm-hmm. like he just can't it's such a chore that he has to talk to them you can see he just wants to tell them to shut up he's so annoyed right. by them um which is a different take because stephen king sat down and said well that this feels like a mockery of what i suffered through and what i put on the page this guy kind of is the the mirror image of that and you know Kubrick's movie is a lot more cynical than the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's there's room for redemption in the book. There's room for empathy. There's hope in the book. Whereas this, it's there there ain't much of any of that. In this it just, movie. It, once that shit hits the fan in that last like 30 minutes, like that's it. Yeah. You're all done. Like yeah. as soon as she finds the pages of, you know, all work and no play make Jack a dull boy, <laughs> like over and over again in different styles and everything like you knew like uh, and we're all done yeah like he has lost his mind i think the one thing that i have with all of it too because like kind of like what you're telling me with how he with how king wrote this book is i could understand then if he's literally if he is putting himself on the page as this character jack right to have it kind of be in that sense with how, how the book was supposed to be to where it came from with, with Jack Nicholson and how he portrayed the character, it would, it's kind of going back to that whole idea of like a mockery of like what I went through and what yeah. I've done. Cause like, this is my life. It's almost, it sounds like it's almost in a way semi autobiographical for sure. And someone is now taking that and just spitting it out and acting like none of that ever even mattered. All that matters is I'm going to get this guy to go crazy and he's going to give one of the best performances of his whole entire life because Nicholson kills it. Right? Oh, he's terrific. It's an iconic performance. Like, that's going to be something that will stick with you for the rest of your life once you watch this movie. But it's not the story that King obviously had written and had in mind, if that's if yeah. that's where it was going. Yeah. Uh, Jack Torrance in the book, I would say, is like, King going, what if what if the worst parts of me became true? Mm-hmm. How would I how would I reconcile with that? 
And I feel like Kubrick's version is that same character, but goes, oh, those aren't the worst parts of you. That's just who you are. Right. You are an addict. You are an abuser. You're a monster. And you don't feel bad about it at all. Mm -hmm. And if somebody could just give you enough of an excuse to do it, you would go off the deep end and never look back. And that's what Jack is at the end of this movie. Right. Because in the book, book spoilers, if anybody's that's concerned fine. about that. 1977. <laughs> book spoilers. <laughs> but in the book, at the end, um, it's not that Jack goes crazy. It's that his his body is possessed by the souls of the Overlook. And that is what's chasing Danny and Wendy right. through the hotel. And he even, he even momentarily redeems himself in the book. Jack's able to fight off that influence long enough for them to escape so that he can destroy the hotel and he goes down with it. Whereas in this, that you're seeing the real Jack Torrance at the end of this. Mm -hmm. Finally, I can drop this facade and I can take, I can get these two to just shut up and leave mm -hmm. me alone so I can complete my masterpiece. Cause these are the two that are holding me back and taking my time and my attention. You know, it's, it's the, the writer's block excuses. You just tell and I and I can relate to that in a way because I you know I fancy myself somewhat of a writer. When you get that block, yeah. When it's difficult, first of all, it's very embarrassing, and you can see Jack be embarrassed in this movie. Like when Wendy see you know he's sitting at the table and she maybe you'll maybe you could read me some later and you can. Right. He's he gets so irritated because he knows he doesn't have anything and he doesn't want to have to admit that to her because then he has to confront it. And when you have that writer's block, it's so easy to write you know explain away why it's like that well you know i just have to work all the time or you know i i gotta i gotta clean the house if i don't clean the house but when i'm done cleaning the house i'm gonna write right. i'm gonna write and then when you're done cleaning the house you come up with another reason not to write because you know deep down you're not writing because you got nothing and it's right. embarrassing and you know so i and again king writer big shock so you, you can see him working through i think a lot of those emotions and and um those demons and he, mm -hmm. he was somebody who did also very much struggle with alcoholism um and, and and addiction which he really saw as the true dangers and demons in his book and, and along with the supernatural stuff because it is stephen king mm -hmm. um and and the, and the book's even crazier in terms of the supernatural uh, there's a lot of stuff that didn't make it to the movie but that's what kubrick is not interested in um he, he's he was very public about like almost sort of diminutive of King's book. So I could also see why Stephen King felt disrespected because he was like, oh, that's a that's a ghost story. That's silly. Kubrick didn't believe in the supernatural. He was very practical. He didn't believe right. in an afterlife. He didn't believe in fate or any of this kind of stuff. He was very analytical and practical. He wanted to tell a story about the human psyche. And he he doesn't even think of this as a ghost story, which I think is interesting because I think there's inarguably something supernatural still happening in his movie. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you go into the ending of the movie where after you see Jack frozen outside and then it's going back into the hotel and then it goes straight to that picture from 1920 oh. and it's him in the picture. And so now you have that whole idea of like ship being open to interpretation of like, was he, you know, reincarnated or is you've this, always like, been the caretaker, you, Mr. Right. Torrance? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Real quick though, I just need to like I was in a group chat and when we got to that whole scene in the bathroom and they dropped that one word that we really should ah, not say, and yeah. they drop it very loosely. 
multiple times. Like I didn't hear yeah. it the first time. So let me repeat it. And then you get the answer <laughs> back. So then you repeat it again and then you yeah. get to hear it again. <laughs> I, I always forget that they, they use, you know, they drop the end bomb. They use that yeah. slur in this real, movie. Real I, loose with it real quick. Like <laughs> I, I always forget. I, I agree. It always, it always catches you by the, you know, you, you sit up when you hear it. You go, Whoa, you sure do. Well, you but you sure know, <laughs> this is something I've talked about a lot recently too, because I find a lot of modern audiences seem to struggle with this. Um, and I, and I do think this is the case here. You know, I don't think depiction is not always endorsement. You right. know what I mean? These are two terrible people referring to a very good man in a terrible way. Yes. You're not supposed to go, Oh yeah, that's right. You know, you, it, it's, it's just another, it's another thing on the list to it's go. It's meant to I, make you be uncomfortable. I'm like, Oh, yeah. the, this guy is insane. Like there's yeah. something not right about him, but man, yeah. it hits you real quick. As soon as that word comes out, you're just like, Oh, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And he's talking to a ghost from the 1920s. So it's like, right. you know, I, I, he, that is probably how he would talk. Unfortunately, you know, For real. Um, <laughs> I would, you brought it up and I want to ask too, because, I, I sit and think about this every time I watch it. And I thought about it even a little deeper this time, but I would love to hear what you're, what you think that final photo at the end really, really means. What is the implication of it? I mean, that to me is where the idea of like the ghost story comes into and that he's on this or like the psychological, like the supernatural that he's on this constant loop that yeah. he comes back to his life However, if you, whether it's reincarnation or a spirit or whatever, he always comes back at this hotel. Right. And he's yeah. going to be the caretaker and the cycle is just going to start all over again is kind of how I interpret it. Mm -hmm. um, or that it's like a generational thing, like his father before him and like, or like whatever it is, like somehow it, there's some sort of tie in in that sense. Yeah, it's it's some sort of weird honeypot that continues to pull your your soul back in maybe yeah. over and over again. It, I I've never I've never landed on a completely satisfying answer to this. It, it, it like really is the the question I can't answer every time I watch it. And there's also that conversation he has with Danny where he asks him, you know, do you like it here? Mm -hmm. I love it here. I feel like I've been here before, but it's it's not like deja vu. But I feel like I've been yeah. here before. And, and yeah, I know I don't. I still don't fully know what that means. You, yeah, is it reincarnation? Was, you know, was he here in a past life? Is he doomed to come back here and die over and over mm -hmm. again? Because it, down to a spiritual level, he himself is just so irredeemable and evil that this is where it's always going to go. Yeah. Something I, something I literally didn't notice until this time I watched it. And maybe it's because I had the subtitles on, which I don't think I've ever watched this with subtitles is at the beginning when Olman's telling Jack about the overlook and its history. He tells him about Charles Grady and, and his, you know, killed his daughters with an ax and then himself. And then, you know, he sees Grady later in the bathroom. Right. Um, but Grady doesn't call himself Charles Grady. He calls himself Delbert Grady. Mm -hmm. So the last name is all it takes for us to go. Okay. I know who this is, but this time I went, wait a minute. It's two different names. So is there an implication that Delbert Grady is somebody from the 1920s and Charles Grady is somebody who died in the seventies. Like right. what, what, again, that feels, that feels connected to me that, that people keep coming back here on this loop and, and dying and killing and the hotel becomes even more and more powerful because as, as Dick Halloran says, like even 
some places can shine too. And this right. place shines very brightly. And Danny's like, uh, you know, I, it, it's like, um, all the ghosts are, are frequencies and Danny's a, is a AM FM radio. And when he gets in there, they just sing so loud, much louder than they do on their own. Cause you got to imagine the day to day of this place. Right. It's not, it's not that crazy and exciting right? or nobody would ever stay there. So they're absolutely <laughs> right. That's the whole thing. And it's all of these things come out when everyone's gone. Right. Yeah. Um, there's not people talking about like weird things happening at the overlook, you know, throughout in season time, it's when everyone's gone and there's just a caretaker there. Uh, doing caretaker shit i guess um kind of getting into like more details with like your feelings on the film and everything if you had to list your like top three moments from this movie what would they be any order doesn't matter but like what what three parts are like your biggest standouts with it oh goodness what a question um I mean, the first one that comes to mind, I would love to list it last because it's the most obvious, but mm -hmm. you, you have to, I can't avoid it is, of course, room two, 237. Sure. Everything that everything that happens in 237, um, the, the again, you mentioned it, the sound in that, where all it is, as Jack slowly walks into that room, and you've been hearing the entire movie, don't go in that room. Right. Don't go in that room. And, and you know, and you also have the setup of like, there's a crazy woman in there that strangled our son, which is like, what? Because you don't see any of that. You're right. Like, What's going on? So you still don't really know what you can expect to see. And the sound is, it all drops out. And it's just that bass. It's just mm -hmm. this entrancing bass over and over again as he so slowly walks in the room and the curtain slowly gets pulled back. Again, it's so deliberate. The movie is, the pacing is so strange. Right. And so, you know, I would say you just so different than how you would conventionally make any move. It's like long, long stretches and then boom, jump cut. And it's right. four months later. And it's like, what we, yeah. what happened to those four months? You know, right. <laughs> where do we go? What do we do? Yeah. It's yeah. nothing interesting happened then. Okay. Uh, you know, it's all over the, that scene though, is just the pacing of it is so masterful and so tense. And you know, you, it's all you can do to, to even breathe when you watch it. Right. And you know, then, and then finally the release of him, which also, you know, again, you get this, you get more of a realistic depiction of what Jack's like, because he is going up there to confront a woman who tried to kill his son. And then he's like, Oh wait, but what? She's hot. And like, she's <laughs> naked. And I think I'm going to kiss her. Me. Yeah. <laughs> instead of, instead of even bring that up, I think I'm going to kiss her. Yeah. And you know, and then finally the pull away and reveal that she's this horrific, horrific, dead, rotting corpse woman. Is yeah. Just the best, you know, that that's, that's the whole movie. And like, gave one me some real good that. barbarian vibes there for a second. Sorry. Spoilers on that one. <laughs> but yeah. A little, I, I, I know boobies. what you mean. Old boobies. I know what you mean. Um, <laughs> That's terrific. I mean, again, you know, when he's and for unfortunately, considering everything we said about this earlier, but the great scene of Jack so menacingly following Wendy up the steps. Yeah. And I mean, she's she's hardly person at this point. She mm -hmm. is just pure hysterics on legs and she's she, she can barely put thoughts or words together and you just get this. But you get to see Nicholson just doing exactly what yeah. he got known for. I mean, the line where he's like. He's like, you didn't let me finish. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to bash your fucking brains in. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. holy shit. 
Yeah. Like, the way that he does it is just, yeah. Yeah. It's horrifying. The choices that he makes, the way he enunciates certain syllables and his speech patterns are, are, you know, they're not, they're not correct. You know, this is, he's, he's almost animalistic in that scene. It's just so legendary. Mm -hmm. And then, um, got to pick a third. It's hard. It's such a, it's such a thing to reckon with to try to pick three things out. But, um, the next one, the next one that comes to mind and it's, it's again, it's Nicholson you know, not to give him all the trophies for this, but it's him and Lloyd at the bar. Um, I think maybe, I don't know if I like this probably the first time a little bit more, but, Mm -hmm. and again, you still don't have any heads or tails of what the, what the hell's going on in this place. But you know, that there's a bartender there and that it's suddenly stocked with liquor, even though we very poignantly established there's none left. Because of insurance reasons, makes the insurance cheaper. <laughs> because you know, every ten years, there's a murder suicide here, sure. so we want to try to break that cycle. One hundred percent. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, didn't happen at this time either. But you know, again, it, it 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 forces you to ask so many questions in that moment because now one of your characters is having a dialogue with the ghosts that you were pretty sure were there. You've seen the twins at this point, you right? Know, Danny's seeing things, but now somebody else is seeing things and he's talking to Lloyd at the bar and he's drinking and you know how significant it is that he's taking that drink. And you know, it's the, it, you're like, okay, is he actually drinking or is he just, is he just unlocking that, that, that door psychologically, you know, right. no, there's, there's no whiskey in the glass, but mentally, you know, psychologically, he's accepted that drink. And what does that mean now that he's passed that line? He's crossed that line once again. What else is he going to allow himself to do? I just think that's such an important scene. And because of the questions it makes you ask, you're like, what kind of what kind of movie is this? What kind of story is this? What is what is real? Are they ghosts? Are they manifestations of their own, uh, you know, trauma and psychological baggage? And maybe it's maybe it's two of those things. Maybe it's none of those things. And yeah. That's when suddenly you are on the ride that these characters are on, and I've seen I've seen so many theories about oh it's all in Wendy's head and oh it's all in Danny's head no it's all in Jack's head and I don't some people I think some people you'd be surprised to hear this coming from me I think some people overanalyze The Shining I, I think you and I feel like that's kind of people who are again going back to like the idea the people that are like big Kubrick fans yeah overanalyze everything that he does like they always and again i think that comes back to like that idea of like the evil genius that kubrick kind of is with how he does things and like it could literally just be he just made the shining and he wanted to fuck with people and this is what came out of it and there's no other rhyme or reason to why he did what he did right (laughs) like and that's kind of like the genius part of it is you can this is a movie that if people really want to break down who Kubrick was as a director, we can find all these little nuances and try to like, you know, like find like the hidden meaning in the Taylor Swift song for (laughs) the shining, right? Shining Taylor's version. (laughs) Yeah. The the four hour Taylor's version of the shining. (laughs) Yeah. No, it is a weird litmus test for people. There's an entire documentary about what people think this movie's about called room 237 mm-hmm. and it's terrible it's embarrassing the, <laughs> the things people come up with with so little basis and reality right. and having so so little supporting evidence from the film it's like i can't i can't believe somebody let them make a movie about this and and in theory they'll be like well it's actually about 
you know, the indigenous native genocide as a result of American colonialism because of all the, 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 the native art and art, you know, design and decoration. And they say it's on an Indian barrel ground. And it's like, mm -hmm. okay, I feel like, again, I think Kubrick's purposely putting something there, but I don't know if it's what it's about. And then some people think it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird confession from Kubrick that he directed the fake moon landing. Uh, that's a whole, that's a whole, rabbit hole out you can you can go in on your own time the fake moon landing is one of my favorite conspiracy theories of all time yeah there's, like, there's a popular subset of that theory that people think kubrick directed yeah, the yeah, moon yeah, landing. yeah. and yeah. and that's you know there's it's so funny um because i know people uh honestly even my husband said is do i think we went to the moon in 69 no do i think we've been there since then absolutely and like we've seen footage from that but he's like He's like, you're telling me we had the technology in 1969 to fly to the moon. I don't know. You see, it's 2001: exactly. A Space Odyssey. We we made it. <laughs> we can we can make it look like we did. Kubrick knew. Exactly. He knew. And exactly. then people think, oh well, Danny's wearing an Apollo sweater in one scene. And that's that's or or because in the book, this is the one I I just learned this part today. In the book, it's room 217, mm. and he changed it to 237 because the moon is 237 thousand miles away. Man, Jesus Christ! What? I That's <laughs> those are the type of people that literally I'm like, you know, what's a really good thing to do every once in a while? Go outside. <laughs> you touch grass, right? Sunshine, like yeah. feeling sunshine on your face makes you feel good. Like it's okay. <laughs> I, and I, again, I think I think this is such a terrific and layered movie, and I think there is so much to digest and interpret, but I don't think it has to be to that degree. Right. And I and I think people are almost giving Kubrick, you know, well, I definitely think they're giving Kubrick a little too much credit, or they're also giving him not enough in that they're, you know, he was saying something with this, and he was crafting the story that was interesting to him, and and they won't let it be a very good horror movie. Instead, it has to be this weird subversive subconscious subliminal uh, like, confession. What a choice for that. Like if you're going to go with like subliminal messages, like dig deep into the fucking uh, uh, Dr. Strange love. Like that yeah. one is literally a satire of the times of <laughs> during with yeah. the cold war and everything. If you're going to try to dig, go dig in there. Like yeah. that would be, I feel like that would be more of a rabbit hole for these kinds of things. Than <laughs> yeah. Now, just to, to somewhat their credit, I guess there's some reality in the fictitious world they inhabit because Cooper was in actuality, he was very fascinated with subliminal messaging. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've had any time to dig into this or if it, any of it stuck out to you, but um, the overlook itself in this movie is like an impossible space that can't exist. I don't know if you came across no. any of this. It's, it's very interesting. And I always, I, I, every time I watch it, I look out for these little weird things. So the film is actually littered with continuity errors, mm -hmm. but based on what we had here, you know, what we talked about, this is a guy who will shoot, you know, a, a shot reverse shot dialogue scene 148 times. Right. This is not a guy who makes continuity errors, right? You shoot a scene hundreds of times. You're going to notice that the chair in the background is different and the, and the back 70 takes than it is right. in the first 70 takes. And even if you didn't notice, you got 148 takes. I bet you can find two <laughs> that, that work together. Right. <laughs> but in the background, you'll furniture moves or it disappears. A famous one is when Danny and, and Dick are talking for the first time, a light switch on the wall disappears. 
Jack's typewriter changes color three times. Um, the, the, the biggest, what I think is the most interesting, you get so many of these wonderful steady cam shots. You basically go on multiple tours of the hotel. It really feels like they're waving it in your face. What this, how this hotel is constructed, what the layout is. They want you to take inventory of it so that later you may not even realize it, but you start to notice that the hotel doesn't make any sense at all. Um, yeah. Ullman's office, again, the first scene where Jack comes there and talks to who would become his boss, Ullman's office. You first get this, this tracking shot of Nicholson walking to the hotel and he gets to the office, which is smack dab in the middle of the building. Right. So it can only, it can only be surrounded by hallways. He gets into Ullman's office and what's there? A window behind his desk looking right. outside. And this was not shot on location. This was in, a, this was all sets. So the window is not there unless they built the window and piped light in through it. Right. There's there's no way that it could be a window in this guy's office looking outside. It's in the middle of the building. Right. And it's something you don't even register the first time. Or when Danny's, um, well, there's a couple instances of this, but Danny will be going down the, he'll turn a corner, right? He'll go down the hall and it's hotel door, hotel door, hotel door, all these rooms. And uh -huh. then he'll turn the next corner and it's just balcony. There's nothing behind the wall. So it's, these doors don't go anywhere. If you right. opened one, it would you would it would be nothing. There could not be a room to go in there. Right. There's also, and I'm I'm doing it. You can watch. You can look at the blueprints and everything. You know, there's there's so much um, there's so much material about this. But the the hotel itself, I like to think of it as almost it, you know it is like almost an organic being itself, mm -hmm. and it's shifting and it's moving and it's transforming and it has no static state anymore. It's you know it, it is this weird non-corporeal space. And I think that is so creepy and it is deliberate on Kubrick's part that even, you know, again, even just down to the, the blueprints of the hotel are scary. Yeah. Everything, everything in the movie is informed by, I want to scare you. Right. You know, and, and, and that's his mad genius mind at work. Nothing cannot be informed by the fact that he's making a horror movie because he doesn't really make, one like this ever again. Right. Um, I think all those movies have elements of horror in them. I think Space Odyssey does. I think Eyes Wide Shut certainly does. Full Metal Jacket does. Mm -hmm. I think all those movies do. Clockwork Orange. Um, but this is the most definitive front-to-back horror movie. And goddamn, did he make it count. <laughs> For sure. And it's like, it's almost as if I love, I love when movies have their scenery or their location is its own character as well. And the hotel in this film is a character, right? Like yeah. it has a story. It has depth to it. It had like, there is no story without what's happened within that hotel and within those walls. And so I think he does a really good job in bringing that aspect mm -hmm. to it as well, for sure. Um, yeah. Going back to like with talking about the top three, I definitely would have to. I agree with probably one of the top moments being that scene with her, with him walking up on Shelley Duvall on the steps. I'm also a big fan of the scene where where we were talking about where she brings him lunch and she's trying to talk to him about what he's writing, and yeah, because I think in that moment that's kind of one of the real first moments where. Cause she'd already had the conversation with the doctor about like how he accidentally dislocated, you know, right. Danny's shoulder and all of these things. And so 
you're like, is he redeemed? Is he not? But like, that's, that to me was one of the first moments when that scene happened that I'm just like, oh, oh, he's not okay. Like, yeah. shit's going to go down by the way, like he turns and looks at her and tells her to fuck off. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm just like, oh, 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 okay. That just happened. Um, and it just, it sets up a lot of unease. Um, yeah. you know, it's hard to go into this movie blind, right? Like the mm-hmm. pop culture references for the shining have been there. Like yeah. I, I've known about the twins. I've known about the, you know, here's Johnny, like all of these super iconic things. So I think that kind of that, that can lean towards like the not scary because I know it's coming, but the anxiety right. of building up to when it's coming and what does it mean? Cause I knew about the, 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 the girls, but I didn't know mm-hmm. what they were going to do. And then they were there and then they weren't there anymore. And that was it. Mm-hmm. Like, we just know that they haunt the hotel. Like, do they, who are they fucking with? Like what's going on? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah. so there's little, there's so much that gets, I guess the kind of way, like there's so much that gets introduced, but you, but you don't get a payoff with they're kind Mm -hmm. of just there. And I think that might be maybe other than like the other things we've talked about history rise with it. But like, I think that kind of stuff with the food, that's one of my biggest pet peeves about this is like something gets introduced and then we never see it again. Oh, I love that aspect of (laughs) (laughs) but I, but I agree because there's never, there's never a part anywhere in the movie where, you know, somebody shows up and they say, oh, let me just tie this up with a bow. And and, and yeah. now that the movie's almost over, you will have understood what you just saw. So much of it is you don't get anybody's take on it. You don't get anybody's reaction to it, maybe except for Shelly Duvall screaming through the hallway. Right. Hey, turn a corner. This guy's in a bear costume blowing another guy. What's that all about? And we're <laughs> on to the next thing. <laughs> right, we're on to the next. Nope. <laughs> Nobody ever said anything that would make you believe that. Like, you don't see that image and go, oh, that's that. Like, yeah. you know, it never came up before that. Never comes up after that. Yeah. You just, you just, again, the woman in the bathtub. What's her deal? She's not, you know, that's, we only get the one ghost story that happened here, which was Charles Grady. He was the caretaker. He went nuts, killed his kids, right. killed himself. That's the one story you get, but you get all these glimpses of all these other terrible things that must right. have happened here. And again, it's like this weird Venus flytrap for darkness, just mm-hmm. bringing in all these wayward, wayward souls. And, and I guess, you know, destroying, you know, any sort of restraint and just letting them give into their worst inhibitions. And, and you get it, you get the sense. A lot of people died here. I don't know that yeah. old lady maybe drowned in the tub. What was her deal? I don't know. And then is that is that the basis with Dr. Sleep? Because I haven't seen Dr. Sleep, but I, I hear uh, a lot about it and how it's like the, you know, the much, the more beloved sequel to. Some people do like it more than this. I wouldn't go this far, though. I'll tell you who does like it a lot more than The Shining is Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Stephen King has even gone as far to say as he enjoys Dr. Sleep so much that it's kind of reconciled a lot of his hangups about this movie. Um, and I won't, I won't give you too much of the hard details on Dr. Sleep because I think you should watch it. And also I would say if you, obviously you, you survived this movie, I think you'll be able to handle Dr. Sleep. It's a radically different movie. And I don't we'll think bring you back on. So I'll keep making everybody else upset. That I've been trying yeah. To come oh, on the show. oh, I, <laughs> 
I would love to come back and do Doctor Sleep, which is another good reason to not get too deep into it now. But what I'll, right. But what I'll, what it's a very different movie and a very different story, and it's it's not as scary as this, which I don't mean as a critique. I don't think it's trying to be. It's just very different in intention, and 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 what it's doing. But it does this amazing magic trick of still being a sequel to this because mm-hmm. you get, and King was very adamant that they not do this and Mike Flanagan had to sell him on it. But you know, he said, I, I only let you make Dr. Sleep. If you don't show that fucking hotel where you don't, we're not going to the overlook. I don't want any of Kubrick's movie. And I don't want to see that carpet, I, which is the most iconic movie carpet of all time. Right. I don't want to see any of that. And Flanagan was like, you, but we just can't not do that. It's, you know, if you're going to do a sequel to the shining. We, we have to go to where we're do going. Those right. things. We can't not do them. And he came up, Flanagan came up with some very creative, um, rewrites of King's book, Dr. Sleep, to sort of canonize both the book and the movie as two things that could exist simultaneously together, even though what King was saying and what Kubrick was saying are so polar opposite. Dr. Sleep is this amazing thing while also being a very good movie where it sequelizes both of them at the same time. And it's mm-hmm. amazing that it works. And I just rewatched it today because I wanted it to be fresh for this. Just and after I watched <laughs> after I watched The Shining, I was like, I, sure. I just got to go watch. Got to go watch the other one for sure. Yeah, it's just so in my head right now, and it is terrific. And I think you should watch it. I won't again. I won't spoil anything for it, but I think you you knowing everything you know about this movie and about not just the movie itself, but you know the the, the lore behind it and the production of it and King's feelings on it. I think you will find. Dr. Sleep to be a very fascinating experience. And it is just on its own a great movie. It's a real, it's a real shame it didn't do very well. Nobody really saw it. Right. I think I think they also did a terrible job when they were marketing it, ex- explaining to I audiences. Agree. This is the shining two. They didn't like yeah. they didn't do that. Right. And you know, they didn't call it the shining two, Dr. Sleep. Like I think right. maybe that would have been necessary. So it's a shame. Or did some sort of tie-in with it. Because I yeah. wouldn't have known that's what it was without talking to, without other people mentioning it to me. Right. So Yeah. I, I think they really failed because there was other stuff Flanagan wanted to do too. He wanted to do a Dick Halloran movie. And now J.J. Abrams is, is developing something about the Overlook Hotel that's getting shopped around. So there will be more takes on this to come. We didn't even get into the fact that Stephen King greenlit an entire miniseries in the 90s. Just because he hated this movie so oh, much. Oh, that's right. To- I do. Yes, <laughs> I saw that right here on my Wikipedia page. <laughs> yeah, that exists solely because he hates this movie so much. He just wanted to see somebody do his novel correctly, and he was very hands-on. Um, and I've actually not seen the miniseries. I wanted to try to watch it before this, but it's not the easiest thing to find, unfortunately. Right. Um, but it's what I, as I understand, a much more literal adaptation of his book, and it it's down it, down to the casting. The characterization is a lot similar. And it was shot at the Stanley Hotel on location where King wrote, not that where he wrote this book, but where he was inspired by this book. So I imagine it was very therapeutic for him to do it. Um, And and it seems to have pretty good, a pretty good reception, surprisingly, um, just because how hard is it to do this again when you have such tall shoulders to stand on? But yeah, The Shining, you know, it's. Somebody else will will probably come and try to do this again someday. And... I I don't see why they wouldn't. I mean, it's yeah. in in the in the time of remakes and reboots and legacy sequels, and you know, like it's it, it's hard to to not see someone doing this again yeah. at some point and and trying to put 
a new spin on it. Should, but that's the whole thing. Is will Stephen King allow it? Right? Like if his if his works are not public domain yet, or people, or I mean, is is there someone where we've already heard? You know, like you said, he was really uh, opposed to Flanagan taking Doctor Sleep. Like, would he be interested in someone even trying to do it again? Right. I mean, I, I wonder if he would be a little more protective about this one, maybe in a world where Dr. Sleep doesn't exist. Maybe he would, he would love to see somebody else try because yeah. a mini, even if it was a great miniseries, a miniseries isn't a movie, right? It's, right? It is a different kind of thing, but because I think maybe he, he, he's exercised those demons of, I just fucking hate that what they do with my book, you know, all yeah. these decades, somebody came along and was able to, uh, rework that in a way where he felt good. I mean, that's crazy too, to take, you know, uh, old men are stubborn. So to get somebody, get somebody like that, you know, Stephen King, who is, yeah. you know, who, who's had a decades to stew in that and be able to come up with something that would change his mind and his feelings is pretty powerful. I, for I recommend, even, even if you don't have me back to talk about Dr. Sleep, <laughs> you don't, you don't have to do that, but I would do it. But um, you should, I you should just watch it. I, I'm gonna I, get a text from friend of the show, Chris Anthony Lopez, going, "Oh, you're already planning on having Taylor back on, and I haven't been on yet." <laughs> yeah, just keep me coming back. You know, so as they keep long interchanging as you... you and Moose Haas and just piss everybody else off. That's that weird. sounds like the greatest podcast of all time, if you ask me. I don't think you can lose with that lineup. <laughs> Winner every time there. Yeah. Sprinkle in some Brother Lomas in there. There we yeah. go. Exactly. It's perfect. <laughs> um, well, kind of with all that being said, I think um, I'm going to go ahead and and get into my letterbox because um, that's how we like to end everything is I'll give, you know, my okay. out of five star ratings uh, for, for each movie that I watch. Um, and for this one, you know, personally, I don't think I'd really go back and watch it again. Oh, um, <laughs> it's not my favorite, I think, but I also think the reason why it's not my favorite, I think Jack Nicholson is amazing in this movie and I get why he gets all the flowers for everything he did. But I, this is one that I have a hard time taking like the making of stuff sure. out of the equation with, um, yeah. Just because knowing how horribly Shelly Duvall was treated and then now knowing that and watching the movie, seeing like her tears are actually real tears. Like she's like, fuck yeah. this shit. Like I'm so over it. Yeah. It kind of definitely takes it down a, a few for me. But with that all being said, I still think it is. I think it's I, I don't think it's a terrible film. I get why people love it and I would never, you know, narc on people for loving it. So I'm kind of very in a, in the middle of the road with it. I, I'd give it three out of five stars, personally. Three. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're breaking my heart. I'm so here. sorry. Three. I'm so sorry. Well, well, like, you know, like I said at the top, I I don't necessarily disparage people who who this wasn't their thing. Cause I yeah. kind of get it in the same way that I get Kubrick's not people's thing. And I get that horror as a, as a entire genre is not necessarily everybody's thing. You know, I, I understand that this can, this is kind of a tall drink of water, this movie, you know, it's, and not everybody's going to be in the mood to sit down and just watch this willy nilly. It's I, an event. Like I'm not one of those people. Yeah. When I sit down and watch a movie, I can't, stop it like i have to have the time to watch it from start to finish otherwise if i have to stop it when i go back to pick it back up i have to start from the beginning again yeah yeah i i get that and and 
I, we mentioned her several times. Jessica was originally going to join us for this. You're right. I, I can't convince her to watch this movie again. So, you know, it, it's right here be, at home. I, Jessica would be like, you're giving it three stars. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She just like, she just can't find the, the nerve to sit down and spend yeah. time with this again. Where, whereas to me, it's like, it's, it's one of, it's one of the all time horror movies. It's one of my all timers. Yeah. Period. But as far as like, what I think is most compelling about horror and why I think I come back to it as a genre every time. I think this is no, no pun intended. I was going to say the shining example. <laughs> How terrible that's you just end the episode right Full there. Pun. Full pun intended. Full pun. <laughs> you know, it's the shining <laughs> example of what I think I love so much about horror. It's just Kubrick's fascination with, with, you know, the, the grand scheme of, of, humanity and the innate potential for for the worst in us and you know very cynical and nihilistic but i think still very compelling ideas and you know through the lens of a horror movie i you know i think that could be very scary yeah. so i think sort of the fatalist ideas he was exploring in this are really tremendous and, and compelling and i could watch this movie anytime <laughs> <laughs> and i am just fine because of it yeah um, I, i'm fine then... no red flags here folks <laughs> I'm going to text Jessica to blink twice if she needs help. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I should have asked at the top at the top of this, but I'm um, so I know being a shiny fan, are you also like, would you put yourself in, in the shoes of like a Kubrick fan as well? Like, do you just love what he does? You know, I, I'm not the president of the, of the Kubrick <laughs> fan club. I would say. But you're say. a card carrying member. Yeah. I'd go to the okay. meetings. Um, <laughs> You they know, got good coffee. <laughs> I would go to the convention, but I, I, and I don't mean that. And that I'm not a fan. I, I just, you know, some people are just, they're real Kubrick heads. Right? Yeah. Like, like you said, not a lot of casual fans in, in, in that realm. I, I, I don't know that I'm informed well enough. You know, I've seen most of his films. I'm pretty familiar with his work. Um, I know what I, I know. I have a lot of admiration for him as an artist, but um, unlike this, his movies are, they're dense. They and are. They're, and they're tough and they're mean. And I mean, even when you think of like Space Odyssey, which is such an iconic science fiction. Let me, let me ask, it might be an episode. Have you seen Space Odyssey? Space Odyssey? No, I have not. Um, the only Kubrick films that I had seen prior to this one was Dr. Strangelove and Full Metal Jacket. Okay. Space Odyssey is kind of the same thing where it's like this big iconic sci-fi movie and you watch it and you go, Oh, that, you know, again, the pop cultural re relevance, you go, that's where that comes from. That's mm -hmm. where that comes from. But it is such a surreal and bizarre and trippy movie with nonlinear story storytelling. And kind of like this, where it's like not going to slow down. And, ex you know, people still talk about the ending of that movie. What was that all about? Yeah. You know, Kubrick just wasn't interested in, in, in putting it all on front street. And that's, that's, that's tough you know, for some, and again, I don't mean that in a disparaging way, like, oh, you just, you don't get it. It's like, no, I, I get why you wouldn't want to spend time with it. Right. 100%. I think that's kind of a healthy yeah. way to look at it. It's like, I get why this might not be your thing, but yeah. in the same sense, I get why that it's the same way that like Orson Welles, like there's people who love him and sure. there's people who hate him. Like there's people who love Citizen Kane and there's people that are like, whatever, it's a moot. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. it just, it's, it, but I also feel it's that way really kind of with anything, but there's, there are some people where it's very, very diehard and yeah. everything else is wrong. And this is the only right way 
to think about it. And I feel like you that's Kubrick is one of those that you kind of you kind of get. Yeah, I would definitely sense. say I'm a Kubrick fan, but I'm a little bit more of a Stephen King fan. And so Got maybe it. there's maybe there's still redemption for me yet. Maybe there's hope. <laughs> I'll still hang out with you, Taylor. Um, and so before we kind of really get out of here, um, where can people, have you got anything to plug? Where can people find you, my friends? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, anybody who knows you may already know about uh, Watt Real Entertainment, our YouTube channel. You just wrapped up your tenure on uh, Spin from the Real, sure the final did. episode of our Schmodown podcast. Sad to see it go, but I'm still there. Watt Real Entertainment on YouTube. <laughs> Um, on October 16th, my, my horror podcast we referenced earlier, Really Scared, will be coming back for a live discussion on Halloween ends. Um, we talked about so many of the Halloween movies last year. It felt only right to to finish off with what will definitely be the last Halloween movie ever. No doubt. That was the last <laughs> one they ever make. We're going to be doing a live conversation about that on our YouTube channel and our Twitch. So come and join that. And if, if people like it and, you know, um, the response is positive we maybe we'll do some more release scares maybe we'll start you know if you liked hearing me ramble about horror movies let me know and come show up on the 16th because i got a lot more of it for you um follow us on twitch as well what real and that's w-a-t-r-e-e-l-e-n-t on twitch um, i've been doing a lot of game streams there um right now i'm playing outlast it's spooky season Ter <laughs> terribly scary game i got so stressed out the other night i quit and went to bed um so i'm playing <laughs> A lot of horror games on Twitch and I stream, you know, once or twice a week. So I'd love if you come and join me on there. And lastly, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Taylor L. Cleek, C-L-E-E-K, Taylor L. Cleek on Twitter. If you want more takes on scary movies, I got plenty of them over there, too. Love it. I love that you want people to come watch you play a game that stressed you out so much you just quit and walk away. People love that shit. <laughs> People eat that shit up. That's true. <laughs> and all of my friends here, if you enjoy what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review Flick and Reel on whatever audio platform you're listening to us on. If you're listening on YouTube, please make sure to subscribe, like, and comment your thoughts on The Shining. And be sure to check out and comment your thoughts on any of the other previous films discussed. Don't forget to hit that little bell icon to get notifications for any time we have new content drop. And you can follow the show on Twitter at NeverSeenItFNR. You can follow me at Allison Salamone. And until next time, my friends, be safe. And I'm going to go keep watching some movies. See ya. See ya.